I appreciate you saying that, but I think it's total bullshit. Like, first of all, I don't think that I'm like, I mean, I'm just saying I have no fucking idea what I'm doing. Welcome to the Poet Salon. I am Luther Hughes coming to you this week with a special bonus episode featuring Rachel Zucker. David Naiman, Mike Sakasagawa, and our very own lovely Duji Tahat. The conversation you're about to hear was initially planned as a panel at this year's AWP called The Craft of the Literary Podcast Interview. Due to the pandemic, though, the panel was canceled, but the conversation went on as a podcast episode, which is what you're about to hear. It shared the perspectives of four different literary interview podcasts, Commonplace, between the covers, keep the channel open, and of course, yours truly, The Poet Salon, all of which you can find linked in the show notes. Rachel, David, Mike, and Duji talked about how they approach interviews and if what they're doing, what we're doing, is selfish or not. And frankly, it's so lovely. If this is your first time listening to The Poet Salon, you should know what you're about to listen to is nothing like our normal podcast. So actually, I suggest going back and starting with episode one with Lena Kalaf Tufaha and Sonnet Spice Coffee. Then obviously work your way here. As always, please rate us five wonderful stars and write us a review wherever you're listening to. It helps us a great deal. So without further ado, here is the episode. Sort of the reason that I wanted to do this panel is because, you know, when I was starting out, I really had no formal training in how to conduct an interview. And I pretty much had to figure everything out by myself on my own sort of uh, on the job training kind of thing. A lot of what I ended up learning in terms of um, interview techniques, different sort of best practices and little tricks of the trade kind of thing, it all came to me from listening to other shows. And in actually, in large part, from your shows, I've learned a lot, um, which is one of the reasons why I, well, it's the main reason why I wanted to talk to you all today and why I'm really excited about this. Each of our shows has a really different style and tone, and each one has a different sort of approach, I feel, to the literary interview. And so I wanted to talk to you all about that and with an eye towards exploring both the hows of interviewing and the whys of what each of us does. So if, to start off, if I could have each of you introduce yourself, you know, introduce yourself briefly, say your name and, um, and uh, introduce your show just uh, real quick. We'll start with Rachel. So my name is Rachel Zucker, and I host and founded the podcast Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People, although we're thinking of dropping the Conversations with Poets and Other People line. Uh, <laughs> and they are long-form, lightly edited conversations between myself and artists, poets, writers, sometimes visual artists, or public figures, or just people that uh, last usually between an hour and a half and two hours. Uh, oh, and I'm an independent podcast. I learned <laughs> to say that. <laughs> All right. How about Duji next? 
Uh, hi, I'm Duji Tahat uh, with the Poets Salon, uh, where we interview poets over a special drink we made just for them. My co-hosts are Luther Hughes and Gabrielle Bates. Um, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. And then David. I'm David Naiman, uh, host of Between the Covers. Like Commonplace, it's a long-form, lightly edited show. It's nonfiction, fiction, poetry, hybrid and indeterminate works and science fiction and fantasy um yeah <laughs> so oh, i didn't um, even i didn't even say like the format of the show because ours is a little different is that worth saying yeah go for it yeah yeah so we also we had do the long form interview um well medium ish where we interview the poet about their work and we answer a question from our guests sort of in the first episode. And then every guest we have on for two episodes, the second one is much shorter. Um, and in the second week, we specifically dive into a poem, not by that person, but a poem that that poet just loves. Uh, and we just geek out about for, you know, 15 or 20 minutes or however long uh, we're so moved. Yeah. I actually find the question of format really interesting. For my own show, uh, I do... Um, I, you know, I talk to artists, uh, writers, people working in all different creative disciplines, and um, occasionally other podcasters, even curators. And I always split the show into two segments. The first segment is where I talk to my guest about their work and occasionally, you know, as appropriate to, to the work um, about their bio as well. And then in the second segment, I invite the guest to bring their own topic. And um, I found that that format choice has really influenced the character of my show a lot. And especially because I can't really predict at all what people are going to want to talk about for the second segment. And that really informs the direction of the conversation. So I wanted to talk a little bit about how each of you, what the format of your show is, and how that sort of shapes the conversation, you think. And since um, you were just talking about that, Digi, why don't we start with you? Yeah. Yeah, well, we we know what the second part of our show is going to be because we ask our guests to provide the poem ahead of time. That said, it is really heavily, I'm surprised by how often we end up pulling from our earlier conversations, uh, whether that's like sort of in appreciation of the poet or poem they've chosen to bring in, you know, whether that's like actually from the poem or just having had that conversation 20 or 30 minutes earlier, it's interesting to see how those two conversations connect. And I think just in terms of functionally how that changes our approach, it's certainly looser, that second section, because we don't know uh, precisely because of that. And I think we bring a similar sort of sensibility in terms of the longer section. And so far as we, you know, we obviously show up with our sort of six or so questions, but then there's just a lot of dialogue and follow-up after what is already set. Um, sort of trusting that, you know, it'll all tie together eventually. Thank you. Okay. How about, um, how about David next? Well, first I'll just say that I like both of your format choices a lot. I think it adds a lot of fun and surprise. The second segment of keep the channel open and then uh, the various segments of the poet salon as a, listen, as a listener, I feel like those are really enjoyable. I guess for me, the, the simple, long-form conversation that I do, it, it comes down to mainly probably as a listener to podcasts, not gravitating towards ones that are uh, super chatty 
a small talk oriented. I like to do deep dives into craft, which I know limits my audience probably because there's going to be people who legitimately want to listen to an author, but they don't want to talk about point of view or tense. And I know all of our shows are craft focused shows. So, but having that long form sort of one format for me has been useful, um, especially since I'm a solo host. I, I love like with the Poet Salon that you have these three uh, personalities and then you have uh, discussions about line breaks like in the last episode that I don't feel like necessarily that I would do, but um, I guess it's a focus on depth rather than breadth um, in terms of accessibility and audience. I don't know if mm. that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, totally. And that's one of the things I really appreciate about your show. I really, I think all, all three of you, um, your shows managed to, to, to get a lot of depth. So, so how about, how about you, Rachel? Uh, well, I was going to actually add that even though David and I have a more uh, simple format in the sense of, you know, like no different segments, um, there is also the introduction, then the main conversation and the outro, which which are in a way a kind of format. And I, I think that even though um, David's show and mine are very similar, our, our, our introduction styles are somewhat different. Um, and even though the length of our shows are very similar, I also think there's a different kind of depth. Like I think David gets into craft details much more precisely and you know, deeply than I do. I think that the length of my episodes are not quite as much about depth, but about a kind of um, getting to an emotional vulnerability that only happens once you've spent, you know, almost two hours in a room with one person. So I also wanted to bring up other formatting questions that maybe are not structural as much as format, such as uh, I always uh, record commonplace face to face, although you know, now I'm going to have to start doing remote recordings. David does face-to-face, -face, but in his studio. And I think that affects uh, the the recording as well, not just in terms of sound, but also in terms of the kind of relationship between the two people. You know, for me, it's, it's often quite different whether I'm recording in my living room at home. That brings all kinds of interesting kind of things into the space and into the emotional relationship, whether I'm recording in a hotel room, whether I'm recording in the artist's home. And there have been a few times where I've recorded in uh, this sort of studio space at NYU that, that I really don't like. But even that has brought certain kind of things that I think, you know, you know, come through in the recording, like in terms of the intimacy or not intimacy. And then I was going to also say that this question of like, solo host versus multiple hosts, I think is also hugely uh, relevant as a, as a formatting question and also how much you edit. Um, yeah. And even though those in some ways are different things, I think they all, when I think about format in terms of form um, with my poet mind, all of these things would function to like influence the final podcast or the final episode that you hear the same way that line breaks or uh, the way the poem is laid out on the page or the length of the poem or the point of view of the poem or the sort of style scope register. So, and I think that as a poet, 
making a podcast, I am like pretty obsessed with those kinds of formal questions. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, these are all things that I, I, I do. I did want to get to more the, this since you brought up this question of um, in person or like where you record is one of the things that I find really interesting um, to talk to all of you about. And especially uh, because we do all sort of record in different ways, different spaces. Um, there's a different dynamic. Obviously, three of us are doing solo shows. And then with the Poet Salon, Duji, you have two co-hosts. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Duji, you you do most of your recordings in person. Is that right? Yeah, we do all of them in person. Okay, yeah. So I think that means I'm the only person here that, <laughs> that primarily does remote recordings. I do in-person recordings when people are in San Diego, which is you know, yeah. pretty rare. Cause it's not, it's not a town that, that, uh, arts and literature come to quite as much as I would like. Um, and I find it really interesting because personally I, I, uh, find in-person recordings a lot more intimidating. And I have always sort of felt that, that when I listen back, when I'm doing the edit, uh, to an in-person one, not only are there just sort of like acoustic things that are a little annoying to deal with, but also I feel like you can kind of tell that I have a different energy in person. And I always sort of think that the guest sort of picks that up too. Um, but, but I want to, I want to sort of explore this a little bit. Uh, you know, what, what do we feel that these things do or don't do? I know David, uh, you're used to recording in, in a, a radio studio and, um, or I, I knew you're sort of having to deal with a, a bit of a transition now. Um, so uh, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what do you, what do you think is really gained by by that? And what do you think, what are you like concerned about in the transition? Wait, can I ask Mike, can yeah. I ask you one sure. quick question and interrupt David before <laughs> he starts? Yes. You usually do remote, but you don't usually do video. That's right. And so right now I'm curious to know, what do you feel? Are you, are you the mic of uh, in person with the video or are you the mic of uh, remote more. Does the video change it for you? Um, this is just something for me personally. Like I always sort of, when I'm talking to people in person, have a little bit of like, I don't really know what to do with my eyeballs. Kind of thing. <laughs> um, which is another thing that I always, um, I get a little nervous about because, you know, I can be personally a little awkward and I don't want that to interfere with the conversation. Mm. So it's, it's a little bit different for me, but, but I'm working it out. <laughs> okay. Sorry. D didn't mean to interrupt. You didn't interrupt. Um, <laughs> Well, I'll just say first that the radio station as a location probably isn't like what most radio stations are like. It's a an old community radio station that uh, Ursula Le Guin called the terminally funky uh, studios of KBOO because they're <laughs> they're not really updated. You kind of are walking back into time, and it's got these creaky, decrepit chairs and funky old. Um, terrible carpeting and soundproofing on the walls that look from like 50 years ago. And, but people love going into it. There's a certain sort of like, and there's all these windows to various other rooms that you see other people doing these other radio activities that it's not professional feeling in a good way. I think, I think it's a third space where, that we're both in that is not like sitting behind a desk in a really professional maybe like you're like some professional radio stations, you feel like you're in an airport almost, I think. And there's no, 
it's sort of charming in a really weird way for people. Maybe in some ways it's not charming for other people. But I guess I have this belief, and there's no way to prove it because we can't do the interviews twice, that if you're in the room with the person, that it's producing the two bodies being in the room together and all the things that are communicated verbally and through gesture are informing what we're saying. And that I think there's something additive that we can't quantify in that happening. But I'll just say to undercut that, um, the only interview that I've done remotely, which was with Solma Sharif, uh, when she had to cancel last minute, it was a super popular interview. And likewise, one of my favorite interviews of Rachel's is with Sheila Hetty and Sarah Manguso, which was done remotely. And so I could ask the question, what were lost in those interviews, but I could never answer that question. So I have this faith that I can't verify around <laughs> the, the in-person aspect. I think often actually around this particular question, I at last year's AWP, Rachel, I saw you on a panel uh, with Danette Smith and Franny Choi of the Versus podcast. And you made like a really lovely analogy of the sort of one-on-one as being sort of, I think, almost as a confessional room, whereas Denez and Franny had a podcast where they were sitting like in your li- in their living room, um, like on their couch with their guests. And I've thought about that a lot, especially in so far as like me, Gabby, and Luther kind of have an actual sort of salon situation <laughs> inadvertently. I think at first we thought it was just sort of a catchy title, but then as we've invited folks into the room and we've shifted the different places we've recorded, we initially started recording at Open Books Poem Emporium. It's uh, this really tiny poetry-only bookstore in Seattle, which we all revere, uh, and the two of them had worked out at the time. Uh, and then we shifted into Gabby's dining room, pretty much, when she moved apartments, uh, which is also a neat space. And I think like the physical, actual location um, both changed and made it more Solani. <laughs> and... Uh, I think, again, just the dynamics of what we're doing and, you know, the fact that, like, we make them a drink, you know, whether there's alcohol in it or not, adds to that effect. Yeah. I'm also really interested because the other three of us, we're all solo hosts, and we're all, you know, doing a one-on-one thing. That's something that both David and Rachel just now made reference to is this one-on-one interaction. And whereas uh, on the Poet Salon, it's three of you in the room with your guest, And I have to imagine that, I mean, to me, it sounds very different as a listener, but I have to imagine it feels very different as well. So like, uh, how do you feel that affects things uh, in the conversation, Tucci? Yeah, I mean, I think if I'm being frank, especially when um, I pitched doing a podcast to Gabby and Luther in the first place, I didn't feel like I was anywhere near a good enough poet or, or, or like have a strong enough mind for it or personality even necessarily to drive a whole show. Um, And I think in some respects it was defensive. And I knew that having the two of them who are, you know, incredibly smart and just sort of fun to be around would add to sort of the alchemy of the show. Well, I hope that you being published in Poetry Magazine has (laughs) has changed that a little bit. Well, I, and yeah, so there's this like really push and pull. Thank you. Thank you very much, (laughs) David. The, um, I think what I will say is like, you know, having the podcast made me a better poet, right? I think I was sort of in the process, I was calling it my DIY MFA, where I was sort of starting to interview poets anyway. And that was sort of part of the spirit within which I asked uh, Gabby and Luther to try this uh, wild thing. And 
I think just over the, you know, we are two years into it at this point, um, maybe one and a half. And I've just gotten so much better at thinking about these things, just being in literal conversations. And I think having, I think I've gotten farther because I have Gabby and Luther helping come up with smarter questions, just sort of like refining my own thinking, both when we do our segment around like a specific craft element, and then just in the coming up of questions for our guests as well. Of course, all of them I, I am indebted to for uh, an education that I, uh, you know, I wouldn't have gotten without them. I got to say, I find that pretty relatable. I mean, I'm not uh, very widely published myself. Um, to me, it, it brings up a little, an interesting question because I, when I listen to the Poets Salon, I find each of your personalities is very distinct in the conversation and you each have a certain approach. So it's like, uh, after listening to the show for a while, I find, um, uh, I expect certain kinds of questions more from one of you than the other in a way that really meshes very well. I find this question of personality and rapport with one's guests um, to be really interesting because I think all four of us have a pretty distinct voice to our shows and point of view, and that informs the approach. So I wonder if we could talk about that a little bit. Like, Rachel, one of the things that I have always really admired about your show is like to a greater degree than anybody else that I'm familiar with, you as a person are very present in the interview. You're very present in uh, the conversation. And, uh, you know, there's a, a pretty wide range of different opinions about, you know, what the role of the host is. Um, you know, like there's the classic sort of Terry Gross doesn't want you to know anything about her, right? Whereas somebody like Mark Marin, for example, it's like exactly the opposite. And I know for myself, that's something that I have tried to incorporate into my show to some degree or another, but it's always been very challenging for me. But so I, I wanted to talk to you about, you know, like how much of this is intentional for your, in your show, how much of it is just sort of like, you can't kind of, kind of can't help it. Or maybe like whatever it is, I just, um, I find it so fascinating listening to your show. And it's one of the things that I really love about your show is feeling like I am getting to know you as well as your guests. For thank you for saying that. Um, I feel like that exact thing that you said has often been a criticism of me in my work. And I guess people who don't like that about my work or don't like that in a podcast host just don't listen to the podcast, um, uh, which is interesting. There's sort of like two ways I want to answer this. One is that to go back to what Duji said about that panel that I was on with Denez Smith and Franny Choi uh, and Rebecca Hoog, I did say that my podcast feels a little bit more like a confessional uh, because Denez was saying that their podcast feels a little more like a, a like a dinner party. And I later sort of took back the word confessional and said, it feels more like therapy. And I do think that that's an important distinction. And I, I have been experiencing in the past few weeks what it's like to speak to my therapist over the phone um, rather than in person. And she can't do the video. So it's just phone. And it is a very, very... I mean, she's still a great therapist and it's still going well, but there's something different. One thing I notice is that in person, 
I would say I talk 80% of the time and she talks 20. Over the phone, I would say she talks 40% of the time and I talk 60%. And I don't know if that's because she wants to make sure I know she's listening, whereas so much that happens in the room. And I was at this uh, Creative Capital event with C.A. Conrad, a genius poet, and they said that, and I don't know where the numbers came from, but they said that uh, in terms of in-person communication, that 80% of it is nonverbal. So 80% of, of how communication is working when you're face-to-face is not the what you're saying, but your gestures, you know, your, your facial expressions, your body language and stuff like that. So I think it's a really interesting question, like not just where we feel most comfortable or where we feel most um how each of us can be our best listener and if that's even all of our goal but i do think that it is very intimidating for me to be in the room with the other person to be face to face i never quite know what to do with my body i i don't feel super comfortable with my physical appearance um, I'm always very anxious about talking too much, doing this, doing that, you know, whatever. I go over the whole thing, you know, endlessly afterwards. I, why did I say this? Why did I do that? Um, often I'm like, you know, I, I, uh, will realize after two hours that I've been sitting in a way that is just killing my back. But like, why, you know, why did I do that? Or I'm too embarrassed to, you know, tell the guest, like, the sound isn't good. I need to stop you for a second. And yet having another person in the room with me, um, which some people do, like Dinez and Franny have their producer in the room with them. To me, that would be like someone being in the room with me while I'm in therapy, you know, or like having sex or something. Like, it, it just seems like so... I don't know. I mean, maybe yeah. I should try it. Maybe I mean, some people have more than one person in the room when they have sex or therapy. I can't um, imagine someone being in the room either. Right. Not for sex, but for yeah. for the yeah. radios. It, that seems yeah. like that would be bizarre. Right. And actually, the thing I was going to also say is that I, in addition to doing individual therapy for a lot of years with a lot of different therapists and having the experience of mostly face-to-face versus phone sessions, I also did group therapy for about 10 years. And I found that to be utterly fascinating and productive and really different from individual therapy. And so I don't think that the solo host versus multiple hosts is is the... I don't think it's a binary in terms of what is the emotional tenor or the emotional location or the level of intimacy, because I think that um, I love the podcast verses, but that podcast, I think, is much more like a dinner party. And Poet Salon, I think, is more like group therapy. I mean, I think it has elements of both. It has elements of, uh, of uh, you know, uh, an, an intimate dinner party. But there are things that happen between Luther, Gabrielle, and Duji that feel to me more like, especially when they disagree, a little more like group therapy. Um, and then the last thing I'll say, uh, because I going on and on, um, is, yeah, I definitely don't know any other way to, you know, be to do anything other than to be way too oversharing or to flip that around uh, and to be present and to be 
transparent. And I know that that's something else that you wanted to talk about at some point, Mike, but I, I do feel like it's the emotional vulnerability or the, or the emotional, uh, you know, the way in which people learn about me as a, and, and the other guest, um, I feel both very embarrassed and ashamed about it because I feel like I, why is this about me? Why isn't this about the other person? It, you know, and, and that's a very complicated feeling that feels some, sometimes disrespectful when, you know, I'm uh, comparing something to myself. On the other hand, I think that there are certain like ethical problems in trying to be uh, absent yourself. And the Terry Gross model has always been very troubling to me, actually. And I think that there's something, you know, that's, I don't know, again, it's sort of, I keep coming back to the therapy analogy, because I've had therapists who have shared more of their personal life with me. And I've had therapists who have been very careful about that. And I think it depends what the relationship is like in the room with the client, what the, what's the client's dealing with, you know, what, whether there's a, uh, identification, what the transference is like. And I do think that, um, I'm using a lot of those skills. Uh, I did one semester of a PsyD program in clinical psychology before I had to drop out. That, that I think, makes me a, a better host than, I mean, David, I would say, is and I'm not saying this to be self-deprecating at all, like way smarter than I am, way more prepared, way more like uh, organized in his thinking. And, you know, the fact that that Duji and Mike, you have these like different structures, like I can't even, how could I even like get to the next part if I had a, a next structural part? I don't know. You know, we all, I think, are, are, have figured out how to do the thing that accommodates our weaknesses and our strengths. Hmm. That's a really interesting point, you know, and to me, a lot of the things that you were saying uh, kind of are sort of pointing me in the direction of a couple of the questions that I have here. And, and one is, you know, like what the role of the host is or ought to be. And the other is, you know, how we go about establishing rapport with our guests, because I mean, that's really sort of the key thing. If you want to get anywhere, have any kind of meaningful conversation, you have to have that sort of trust and rapport between all the people that are participating in the conversation. And, uh, <laughs> I hope this isn't revealing too much. It was in public. So uh, uh, it was reminding me of this Twitter conversation I was having with David a while ago. Um, it was the two of us and, and another person, I think it was Alyssa Harad, uh, were talking about interview questions and the sort of length of interview questions. Um, David was saying that he feels embarrassed sometimes because his questions are very long, or they can be. Um, whereas I've always found listening to Between the Covers, it's true, like, David, your questions can be long, but I they don't ever feel like self-centered or selfish to me. They feel like you're paying very close attention to the to the the work. And so it requires sort of a more articulated, articulate question. This question of what the role of the host is and how we go about establishing that rapport with our guests is one that's very interesting to me. I can't, would would you be willing to talk about that, David? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to talk beyond what I feel like the role is for me. There are hosts that do things that I don't do that I think are important. Like I, I, I'm not doing adversarial 
interviews or having guests on where I have these fundamental problems with their work. That doesn't mean I don't appreciate being a listener sometimes to an artfully done conversation with someone who's put on the spot and you go deep on a, on questions that are more confrontational. But I guess for me, the role of the host is I want to center the guest in the universe of their own interests. And so mm-hmm. I, I think when I'm doing these questions that sometimes become mini, mini essays, they're also demonstrative that I've been doing research within their universe. Like, so I've entered their universe of curiosities and questions, and I've, I've sort of explored around prior to us having our conversation. And so part of my question to them might also be, here's where I've gone in your world um, or related to your world. Um, Does that spark any thoughts for you about the things that you do? Or is this something new? But the other, mm. the other thing I'd add also is I think f- for me, one of my, my aspirations is to generate surprise, I guess. I want there to be, I don't want guests, particularly guests who are doing a lot of touring, when they go by for survival, they have to go on autopilot. They have their prepared answers. And often those answers are really interesting if, if someone's only listening to one interview of that author. So it's not like those are bad, but it's also refreshing when your question is different enough that the guest is knocked out of their preparation. And so we arrive at a place that's um, unexpected and also appreciated. So not trying to spring something on them, but trying to um, just make it feel fresh, I guess. I was just gonna say, that's so interesting to hear, David, and the way you articulate your own sort of formulation of question, because I would say I've evolved over the time of hosting the podcast to sort of move towards your direction. Because insofar as I've had sort of interview experience in my life, it is in journalism. And, you know, early, early on when I was speaking to the journalists about like how do they conduct interviews, I think one of the best, most salient pieces of advice I got was to ask stupid questions, right? To like not contextualize and sort of play dumb in some ways as a way, you know, you often get some of the best answers and as a journalist, like people will reveal themselves in like really interesting ways. And so that's, I think how I, that was the ethos I think I held close as I started the podcast. And then over time, I think listening to yours in particular, it just struck me at some point that like, that is, that can be a really generous thing to give like such a detailed analysis Uh, Or at least, you know, the thinking that led you to that question in the first place that demonstrates like sort of how much to your point that you've sort of flung yourself into the universe of their interests is really, really cool. And I do think that it helps generate a kind of surprise that is abundant in your interviews. I I think I'm thinking of the Solomaz interview in particular, but so many of your guests are just like, wow. You know, at the end of the interview, they're just like really struck. Um, And I think that's definitely a thing that we are trying to go for as a group on the Poet Salon. I think... On the Poet Salon, we have a little more flexibility um, insofar as uh, I think you were alluding to earlier, Mike, we have different interests, we have different personalities and different approaches to asking questions. And so it feels, you know, because we're sort of ping-ponging around, like that surprise is sort of inherent. And yeah, I, I will say just like, again, for myself, I think I've started asking more detailed questions as a sort of interesting uh, counterweight um, to 
you know, sometimes, sometimes we get canned answers. And I think like that for us, that's perfectly fine. Right. Cause mm-hmm. I think in the mix of it all, um, you know, hopefully something new emerges. I think it's a really interesting thing. One of the things that I really love listening for in other people's shows is these, those moments of surprise from the guest, right. Is when, when you can tell that there is a genuine interaction happening because like David was saying, a lot of times, I mean, I'm sure that the rest of you do this as well. Whenever I'm preparing to talk to someone for Keep the Channel Open, I go and listen to like every other interview they've done in the past year. And I will read through every interview that they've, that it has been in print because um, I want to know what else people are talking about. And you do see a lot of the same stuff come up over and over again. And I, you know, partially just for selfish reasons, <laughs> I don't want to just have that same conversation. I always, I also try to think of it as, you know, I, I assume the guest doesn't want to keep having the same conversation over and over again. I find that there is this thing that happens a lot on David's show where the first thing you do on your show, David, is uh, introduce the guest. And the introduction can sometimes take several minutes where you're like reading this long list of accomplishments that they've done and all these different things that different people have said about their work. And there is this moment that often happens, not every time, but often happens where they're like, wow, that was really thorough <laughs> and um and you can tell that that there's an appreciation there similarly on commonplace i find that there is a moment that can happen where rachel uh you may be sharing something about yourself personal and there can be this little moment of genuine surprise from your guest where they're like oh, i didn't realize that this was that kind of conversation but now that i know that it is i'll go there too And so this way of, you know, these little moves that we do that are these little acts of generosity, I, I find them so integral to having a really productive conversation and and establishing that level of trust with the guest. The, the, this thing too, um, that Duji was just talking about, um, you know, changing the kinds of questions that you're asking is something I find really interesting. Um, you know, for myself, I tend not to write out questions beforehand, I will have extensive notes about sort of topics that I want to talk about. But I very rarely actually work off of um, a written list of questions. And and that was very intentional when I was developing my show that I, I didn't want to be looking at my notes too much. And I wanted to try and uh, respond in the moment to what people are saying. That's something that I know that I've... Um, uh, when when Rachel and David were on Keep the Channel Open before we we talked about things like that. I'm really interested in this sort of question of how each of us prepares for a show, like whether we're working off of pre-written questions or or that kind of thing, and, and how we each feel that that preparation influences the conversation. Can we start with Duji? Can I, can I interrupt again? Sure. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, I want to talk about the preparation, and I really want to hear what Duji has to say. But I just want to go back for one second. You said that these were acts of generosity that led to this kind of surprise or connection in the conversation. I just was really struck by that word, because I do think that it is generosity in certain ways, but I think of it so much more often as selfishness, um, just <laughs> in terms of my own kind of method and and way of thinking about this, because I do not think of myself as an interviewer at all. I do not think of Commonplace as a series of interviews. I really think of them as conversations 
And I really, I can't stand those canned answers, um, you know, when someone is like on a book tour. And sometimes, you know, the canned answers are so brilliant. It's often the most brilliant writers who, who have these canned answers. But that's just really not what I'm there for. I am really there selfishly for myself. These are people that have uh, experiences, knowledge, information, vulnerabilities that I desperately want to know, like I want to be let into their world. And so I also listen to uh, interviews with these writers, but I'm not and, and I don't like repeating the same content over and over again. But what I find is that I'm not so much listening to, like, what have they talked about before, but I am listening to what kinds of questions do they always get defensive about? What kinds of questions will not lead somewhere? I'm looking to break them, basically. Or I'm looking <laughs> more more kindly to be let in. And you can tell so much about their people's speech patterns, people's like openness, like Maggie Nelson is a really good example. There are great interviews with, with Maggie. And there are interviews with Maggie where she just does not let you in at all. She is brilliant. And she can talk about, you know, Hannah Arendt all day long, and it's moving. And it's, you know, incredible. And I love to hear her, but she will not talk about her personal life or about certain kinds of, uh, it's not even like her personal life. It's like a certain, you, you, you have to, there's, you have to get to her in a, in a, in a sideways way. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, I can figure that out and beforehand, sometimes I can't. But I think it like I'm very, 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 very much for me. I, I'm there for myself and other people can listen or not, but whatever. Can I interrupt you, Rachel? Yeah. Okay. So I think the generosity and the selfishness are inseparable from each mm -hmm. other. So for yeah. instance, when you're like thinking about the death of your mom and the last place she lived was Taiwan. And mm -hmm. you're, you're dealing with um, all of these irresolvable feelings and questions about how your relationship ended. Yet the show you produce, you go to Taiwan, which of course you could say that's selfish. I'm exploring Taiwan because my mom died there, but you're also highlighting all of these, um, Taiwanese bookmakers and centering all of these questions that are Taiwan specific that have nothing to do with your mom, but were prompted by your initial question around your mom. And similarly, questions around hysterectomy or menopause can then become about whales or, or, you know, so you have these like, like for me, I, I identify very much that question in my own work and like what Duji said how much being a podcast host has influenced his writing it's had a huge influence on my writing and my interests and then i pursue those questions i have my own writing questions or my own craft questions or my own curiosities that are beyond my comprehension that might inform the guests that i then invite onto the show but then when the guest comes on the show i'm centering the guest so mm -hmm. You could say that it's selfish that I'm having so-and-so on to try to solve a question for myself around writing. But on the other hand, 
it is also, I think, maybe generous at the same time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that there's this uh, this interesting sort of dichotomy, or I don't know if it's a dichotomy, or uh, I'm trying to avoid binary thinking, right? I, I, there's this question of whether it's selfish or generous. Maybe if we shift a little bit, because what what this is really bringing up for me is why do it in the first place? Yeah. Right. Like I think that's sort of the big question of all of these things, mm-hmm. and it's something that I ask myself all the time: like, why am I doing this? And there is an aspect of it that feels to me very similarly, very selfish. Like I'm talking to people because I want to talk to them, right? Like I, I want to have these conversations and I want to be the one in, in, well, I'm not actually in the room with the person usually, <laughs> but you, you get what I'm saying. Like I want to be the one doing the talking. I don't just want to be a listener and passive. And yet something that, uh, you know, I find a little embarrassing to admit, but um, and I'm, I'm sure that this happens to to each of you that, you know, occasionally a listener will reach out and say, like, the show, listening to the show is something that they really love or that has been helpful to them or that it adds something. And that's something I find very gratifying. And it's certainly something that I hope to accomplish. But like, it's hard to separate that out. You know, like, it, I, it, this is sort of the question with any creative process, right? Like it's the same with, um, when I'm making photographs or writing a, an essay or a poem or something like uh, on some level, I'm doing it mainly for myself. Right. But then I'm also not just putting it in a drawer, right? I, I'm trying to put it out into the world and do something with it. And that to me, again, can feel selfish, but also at least for me, there is a hope that that can be of service to other people as well. I think this question of why we're doing this is really an important one. Um, it can be very clarifying. And um, yeah, I'm really interested to hear what you all think about that. Um, if, if I might, I mean, just to zoom out to like sort of the moment that we're in, um, global pandemic notwithstanding, You know, you're seeing a lot of folks like build like mutual aid groups, right? And this idea of looking out for one another uh, is both selfish and generous, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And I think that in a lot of ways, you know, what prompted me to ask Gabby and Luther to start this podcast was because I was listening to poetry podcasts and I was like, I've listened to all of them (laughs) or I'm caught up on all of them, you know, like, why aren't there more? And uh, frankly, like, why aren't there more um, from people like me? Um, with for you know who who come from uh, the communities I come from, and so you know as as with respect to the question of like why do it at all, I think at first it's that you know I, I would like to in the and this is maybe also a poetic approach I would like to produce something that a previous version of myself uh, would have really appreciated um, seeing or hearing or just sort of consuming at some point. That's maybe this the that is selfish in some ways. Uh, <laughs> because that is for myself, but that is also generous in some ways because, you know, that younger version of myself really, this current version of myself could really use some guidance on, you know, what what to do next. And I think sort of thinking through that in a communal way, and I think that was sort of why my instinct was towards, you know, pulling in other co-hosts as well as, like I mentioned, just not being particularly ready. You know, I think the more people I can pull into it, uh, the better the product, and then, the more useful that, and by better, I mean the more useful it can be for, you know, that same group of people who is frankly wider than I have any line of sight into. Mm. How about, um, how about Rachel? 
So I think that there are um, a bunch of reasons that I do commonplace, and I'm I I'm gonna try to. I wish there was a way to simultaneously say them all because to list them in any order is to imply a hierarchy. Um, but one of the reasons that I started doing commonplace and that I love doing it is trying to create uh, a non-hierarchical, non-traditional mode of learning, connection, education. A lot of people listen to commonplace as a kind of non-degree MFA, either because they can't afford it or, um, you know, so I, I feel very strongly about that. That's, that's very important to me outside of my podcasting work as well. I think I started it because I was lonely. I think I started it because I wanted, um, cause I thought I'd be good at it. I absolutely think the most important thing, uh, the, the most important goal for me and for all the other people who work on commonplace is to destroy white supremacy and the heteropatriarchy. Now, I know those are big goals, but that's why I'm doing it. And I have certain uh, specific and different responsibilities as a straight white podcaster that, you know, than I might if I were of color. Um, but if that is my goal, if that's a, if that's both my internal and external goal, I have to figure out how to make sure that those other goals, which are important, feeling good at it, not being lonely, um, offering something for free, that, you know, being anti-capitalist, um, but also paying the people who work on commonplace. Like I have to, I have to make sure that each one of those goals or each one of those reasons for doing it is honored to the extent that it can be honored so long as it does not interfere with the larger goal, which is about dismantling white supremacy and the heteropatriarchy. There's a, <laughs> I want to come back to some of those things, but I want to hear from, from David too. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think I have a similar thing to Rachel around things that are very self-oriented versus things that are more focused on social justice. But I do um, feel like at least the initial impulse was um, to learn more about writing for myself. And then also then to create a space where others could learn about writing. And then from there, also a space that's promoting writing that isn't happening in the certain forms that are most common in a capitalist marketplace. Like It's not a coincidence that you see 80-page novels in Latin America and Europe, but you don't see them in the United States, or, or image text, or works that refuse to accept the label memoir or novel or poetry. You don't see them as often, and they're not usually bestsellers. And so promoting and foregrounding the presses that are doing that sort of work, and then thinking about from there, um, foregrounding works that are in translation, because we do so little translation, and can we put forward the people who are touring for their books in another language in the United States. And then even larger than that, then I guess questions just largely around representation, which I think matters for hosts and guests and thinking about, as I just mentioned, the aesthetic questions around representation, writing styles in schools, but also race and gender and class and nationality. And I definitely have in my mind 
the open, I know in my mind, like, what are the things that I haven't done enough of in the last two years? Like, so that definitely informs the type of people I ask. Um, and then that you have to take that into account with my show being in person and it's not in New York City, it's in Portland, Oregon. So even though I might have these open questions of like, well, I want to do more of this, that doesn't all necessarily happen right away. But I definitely have a sense of like, things that I'm not doing well in that regard. It's a it's an interesting um, thing, you know, just to say for myself, um, I started my show. So, you know, I talked to a lot of writers um, and, and you know, this this is uh, the, the panel title, if it was going to be at AWP, was going to be the, the craft of the literary art, uh, the literary interview podcast. But, I, you know, I actually talked to a lot of people who are non-writers um, and to the extent that I have a creative practice that's known at all, it's more as a photographer than as a writer. And this for me came out of, um, you know, I, I would go to this photography festival that was in, that's in my city and would have these conversations with people that were like the best conversations I would have all year long. And I, I wanted to have more of those, <laughs> um, cause I didn't feel like I had a creative community, um, people that I knew. And I have more of that now, largely because of that festival being in my town and lots of local people going there. But I, I think I was originally looking for connection more than anything else. Mm -hmm. And there's definitely always been an aspect for me of, um, connection and community building, um, you know, in the ways that I try to maintain contact with guests, um, after they've been on the show, I'm not always great at that. Not as good as I would like to be, but, um, but I try, but thinking, you know, as the show has gone on, it's been a little over four years now, um, a little over a hundred episodes. I find that I'm a lot thinking a lot more about what the show can do and what, what am I like by putting this out in the world, what is it accomplishing and what responsibilities I have? This thing that the two of you both mentioned um, and where I sort of am interested in going with this is one of the things that David mentioned was that his, these concerns that you have like um, uh, for social issues. And I know a lot, a lot of the times you will talk to people on your show about environmental issues um, informs who you have on the show. I think that this is such an interesting question of like how we choose who we're going to talk to. Obviously, part of it has to do with access. Part of it has to do with like you were saying, David, who's going to come to Portland, Oregon? Um, who's going to talk to, you know, a podcast at all? Who's mm. going to, you know, I'm, I'm not well known, um, uh, 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 you know, outside of San Diego, the San Diego photo community. It's not like I'm a household name. So, you know, um, some people just aren't willing to talk to me and that's fine. Um, but you know, leaving the question of access aside, um, there is still, it's not like I invite everybody on my show that I've ever heard of, or everyone that asks to be on my show. I don't invite them all on to, to be the show, to be on the show. So like, I think that this is a really interesting question of like how we decide who we want to talk to. I'll just add, so, I'll just add to that question or maybe as an aside that the thing that I hate the most about doing the show is the gatekeeping part. I know that's not about the, it is partly about the deciding, but um, there's definitely people who I would be happy to have on the show who are coming to Portland, who would be as good as anybody I am having on and I'm not having them on. 
purely based on logistics and mm-hmm. the number of people uh, who I have on the show in a given year and my time for preparation and good or bad luck around when that all uh, intersects with my own life. So sometimes that's not taken very well, or sometimes I don't take it well. And I've had to learn over years about not feeling bad because I started out like, you know, at the beginning, just answering every single solicitation. And it was only a year ago that I even had like and figured out like to have an auto reply that could filter out like the several hundred people who don't even know the people they're soliciting when they email me. Because I get all sorts of solicitations that are people who are obviously unaware of the show who want to be on the show also. I know it's a different question than what you're asking, but it's for me, it's related to it because it's a stressful aspect of figuring out who I want to have on the show. Yeah. I think the gatekeeping as- uh, aspect is a really um, interesting one, and it's an important one. Certainly, when we think about sort of the ethical and responsibility kind of questions about being a, a an interviewer or a podcast host or whatever we want to call ourselves, maybe we can come back to that. Because I I, I, I I think that it's sort of like a, there's two sort of things here, like when we're considering one, like what those responsibilities are, but then also to, to, to not, because gatekeeping is such a necessarily fraught thing. Um, and, uh, you know, we all only have, you know, however many days available per year to talk to people. We only have so many episodes. So just logistically, we can't have everybody on the show. It's a sort of necessity at some point to make some kind of decisions. And that is a fraught decision to make. But then at the same time, I'm also interested in this question of like, we're choosing people to be on the show for a reason, like, because we want to accomplish something. And I think that's an, an interesting and important thing to consider also, you know? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So, uh, like, Duji, when you when you are, um, and, and your co-hosts are talking about who to have on the Poet Salon, what kinds of things are you thinking about? What are, what kinds of things are guiding you in that, in those decisions? Yeah. Well, for us, I think, even from jump, when we first started having conversations about starting a podcast, we really wanted to set some really strong constraints for us that we knew that we could achieve um, because it was an experiment uh, because this is very part-time for all of us. So for us, you know, we decided 10 guests per season gives us 20 weeks, 20 episodes across the first half of the year. And then we get sort of the second half of the year uh, to begin to really plan and even start doing interviews for the next season. So that's sort of like one set of considerations. And then another one is, you know, two of the three of us are from Washington. Gabby, you know, lives here in Seattle. um, And we all feel like there's not enough love for the poets in Seattle Um, or that, you know, that Seattle sort of Pacific Northwest literature is not as uh, elevated maybe as we think it should be. And so sort of given those two things, we figured, we'd like half of our half of our guests to be from the Pacific Northwest. And then the other half are folks who are just sort of coming through, whether it be through the Seattle Arts and Lecture Series, which has been really helpful and generous in helping us book some guests, especially early on when we didn't really have a product or a list of guests to show, you know, and readings, uh, you know, at the various bookstores uh, around town. We are really lucky to have like a really thriving literature scene and, and, you know, most folks who are on a book tour will stop in Seattle at some point. So that's, that's really great. 
you know, I think there's a little less pressure, uh, I feel, about sort of our guest lineup. Uh, again, it's a little diffuse because we have so many cooks in the kitchen. I don't feel like I bear the responsibility of it. I think collectively we feel that responsibility and we definitely want our guests to sort of reflect our interests and again, our communities and, you know, the stuff that we're thinking about and the, and the, and the work and the, that informs how we think and move through the world. Mm. Rachel, you want to go next? Sure. Um, A lot of it has to do with luck and logistical stuff. Like um, since I'm an adjunct at NYU and I teach um, in the fall, but not in the spring, I try to see if I can get, and I don't pay guests to come on the show. I don't have a budget for that, um, but I can usually get $150 to have someone visit my class at NYU. So if someone has a new book out, especially, and I, I can teach their book and I can invite them to class and then I can record with them on Commonplace, it's a little bit like I've given them, uh, you know, a little bit of, uh, of, financial resources, you know, to be on the podcast. And also I've enabled myself to double, you know, to prepare for, for class and for the podcast. That doesn't happen that often. Um, you know, sometimes I'm very lucky to be living in New York. Many, many writers come through New York. Um, uh, but I also try to set up, uh, recordings whenever I travel, um, and, you know, wherever I go to try to do at least, you know, one or two. Um, but so, so that's the logistical part of it. But then more important than that, because there's many, 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 many more people than I have um, the ability to, to have recorded conversations with. It's very, very much about um, representation and, you know, of every kind. Um, and representation in terms of identity and positionality and subjectivity, but also in terms of content. Although I am not uh, diverse in this or inclusive in the sense that I am not interested in having conservatives, Republicans, uh, any kind. I'm not interested in like providing a platform for hate speech of any kind. Um, so I don't feel compelled to, and I don't have anyone on whose work I don't like, and I don't have anyone on who, you know, I'm not interested in their work. Maybe I like know that their work, like I don't want to have someone on that. I don't have anything to talk about with them. But for me, I have something to talk about with a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of people and a lot of different styles and a lot of different, you know, so I feel like very committed to not only having a really diverse group of people or on the, but like people who will talk about, you know, something that uh, hasn't been talked about before, like, you know, anarchy or anti-capitalism or the experience of getting really, really old. And also just, and this this is actually a little technically tricky, but a diversity of uh, vocal styles or differences, physical differences. So like recording with Ilya Kaminsky, um, wanting to make sure that uh, he was understandable to a large audience or recording with Gerald Stern who has Tourette's and it was a very particularly trying day for him when I recorded with him and um, so his um, speech tics were much worse than they usually are and you know deciding whether to run that episode whether it was a you know whether it put him in in a in an authentic light or whether it was 
like not that accurate and representative of his um, speech patterns or talking with someone who maybe stutters. How do you deal with that? So all that, all of those kinds of things, I think I try to think about like, have we had too many people talking about the same thing? Have we had too many people from New York City? Have we had too many first book, you know, 20 something year old superstars? Have we had too many, we definitely haven't had too many old people. So I, you know, I try, I try to think about that. And I, and I, keep track of my numbers, you know, like how many straight white guys have I had on commonplace? I think four Mm. out of, I don't even, you know, 85 or something. Um, Not to say that I'm not interested in talking to them, but, you know, I'm interested in making sure I talk to as many different kinds of people about as many different kinds of things as possible. And their work is so totally compelling. So, yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting point about, um, keeping track of who you talk to. It's something that I do as well. And I didn't know if maybe that was a weird thing to do. <laughs> it feels I do awkward. find it useful. Yeah, Can I say something else that's very awkward that I probably shouldn't talk about? So of course I'm going to. <laughs> okay. And I would love to know if you feel comfortable answering this, what each one of you does. I I really don't know how to handle not knowing if a potential guest has a me too problem. Hmm. And what I find is that sometimes I'll, you know, be really interested in someone's work or, uh, you know, someone will recommend someone else to be on the show. And I, I have to be honest, it's only been with male identified people that I've that I've come across this problem. I'm not saying it only exists with male identified people, but uh, you know, and then I'll sort of ask one of my friends who's a little more in the social mix, um, cause I don't go out very much, you know, and I'll say, does so-and-so have a, you know, a me too problem? And they'll say, you don't know. And, and then I'm really stuck because, you know, I don't, I, again, I don't want to hurt my listeners. I don't want to give a platform to people who are actively or have in the past really hurt other people. But I also don't want to go on gossip. And I don't want to like, I'm not an investigative journalist. And if I if I were, I, I wouldn't be like, doing, you know, insider profiles of these people. Um, so I, I, I'm trying to figure out what my responsibility as the host is, in terms of how much like poking around do I do? Um, because again, I do think it's, it is my responsibility. You know, if I have someone on the, the show and then it turns out that they've, you know, everybody but me knew that they were a real bad character. I, I don't want that. I don't know. Have, have, has this been a problem for any of you? Um, <laughs> go ahead, David. I've all, I mean, I don't do any poking around but uh, I did. Ha- I was scheduled to interview Mark Weiner, the uh, guy who created Mad Men. Yeah, and he had his book come out. And I do a lot of preparation, like maybe thirty, thirty-five, forty hours for an episode. I was all prepared for that one, and I was. I had a lot of questions about the book that he wrote because it um, was about an older, wealthy man who lived in a high-rise who is a attracted no wait actually it's about uh his daughter is attracted to like a construction worker and his is high rise and it's um sort of a detective story but there's a lot of sexualized violence and i wasn't really clear where he was positioned 
in relationship to it. And I know there was a lot of questions about Mad Men and the role of women in Mad Men. And um, so I had a lot of questions I was going to ask around misogyny and feminism in relationship to his book and his TV series. And I wasn't mm-hmm. clear where he was in relationship to that. But about a week before he was supposed to show up, the accusations came out from Cater Gordon, one of the writers who was dismissed the year after she made an accusation that he had asked to see her naked late in the office, that he deserved to see her naked late in the office when they were working alone. And um, I decided I didn't, I I think someone could have decided to continue with the interview to fold in those accusations into this conversation and still have the interview. I just don't know that I was the person who could do that well. And um, Mm -hmm. so I decided my role in it was to not interview him. And Mm -hmm. that actually, not because I advocated for it, it actually became part of the news. Like I was contacted by NPR and I was in the newspaper in Seattle, but I wasn't because I was, I canceled with him and then went out and like contacted news people. That wasn't like the motivation behind it. But, um, but it was weird. I didn't know. Like, I was like, well, does, I don't know that this happened or didn't happen. Um, but I felt doubly weird because it felt like it was, I had the gut feeling that it didn't feel super examined in his own writing, that -hmm. it was there, but he wasn't in control of it and couldn't see what he was doing. Um, that was my gut feeling but I don't know that. Um, I think I made the right decision for myself, but I could imagine someone else skillfully having that conversation. And I was also supposed to be on stage with him at Powell's, Mm. which made it more complicated, but that's the only time I've ever had to think about that. Um, But I don't think that I've ever really looked. It's interesting to look into like a person's, like what would be the line that would be crossed where you wouldn't have someone on is would be an interesting conversation also. I think, you know, it is something that I, I think is interesting. I, I have never had to um, like cancel an interview because of something like that. The thing that, that is more um, come up for me is like whether uh, like a, a question that I've never quite settled is like if someone, uh, one of my guests uh, subsequently, like after I had already released the episode, um, if it had turned out that something came out about them, like, would I go back and, and scrub the episode? Would I like add a, a new intro to it to talk about it? David, I think the thing that you were talking about just now, um, also speaks to something you were talking about before, which is that you don't really want to be having adversarial interviews with people, which is something for me as well. I don't want to like, in general, I'm not picking people to talk to if I feel like I want to argue with them. And I, I have felt that, you know, there are things you can tell about people by the work, which I know is like a a slippery thing. It's not something that's definitive, but there are times when there have been things in the work that I'm like, I, I don't, this makes me feel uncomfortable. And so maybe I'm not going to ask this person that has happened to me before. So like those people obviously ended up not like I didn't invite them on the show. It's not that I do like a lot of like background checking or digging, but I do, I do try to keep my ear to the ground. You know, like it is something that um, it's never really come up. Like I haven't ever uncovered anything about people, but I do 
you know, I, I try to keep my ear to the ground, at least like seeing what conversations are being had about a person kind of thing. And like seeing, you know, like, especially because a lot of the people that I talk to on the show, I'll learn about their work because it was recommended to me by somebody else, you know? Um, and I know that's also not a perfect sort of screening mechanism, but my hope is that the sort of the preponderance of different ways that I'm paying attention to these things is at least, you know, trying to, uh, address some level of my responsibility with these things, because I do agree with you, Rachel, that you don't, I don't want to be responsible for putting for my show, hurting other people. And that it, it it's something that I do spend a lot of time thinking about. Yeah. What about you? Did you, is this something that, that you have, have thought much about or, or, or had to deal with on your show? Yeah. I mean, we're, I think have the benefit of being the shortest running podcast of the four of us. Um, and so we just have had fewer opportunities, I think, to have this conversation, but it is interesting to me how much of a editorial conversation those have become. One thing, I mean, we have had, that is not to say we have not had the conversation. And I think this is where having a, a diffuse sort of set of responsibilities and network of people and, you know, poetic poetry, social circles is helpful um, just because so much of this operates on with, you know, whispered networks. So to that effect, you know, again, I, I rely on my co-host for a lot of things. This is one of them. I do think it is, we, we also, I think, acknowledge that it might happen. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's a very real possibility that someone we've already interviewed and that's a, that, that has been published, um, that this, that we will have, and we will have to reckon with, I think our own role in that. So I think for us, neither, none of us believe that the position that we've staked out to the extent that we've staked one out is done or complete, right? I, I think it is very much ongoing um, for all of us. This project is alive um, and how we choose to sort of respond uh, to ch changing circumstances is a thing that we're, I think, constantly in conversation about. I was thinking mm. of when you were saying, Mike, that what would you do about people you've already had on the show and would you go back and change the episode? Like, I could think back and say, like, I interviewed Juno Diaz maybe seven or eight years ago. And then more recently, when I had Therese Marie Myatt on the show about her book, Heartberries, much of the in, the introduction was written by Sherman Alexie. A lot of the great press was by Sherman Alexie, which she's all removed from her book since then. But a lot of my introduction about her came through his words. Should I go back and take that out? I'm not saying there's a right answer, but you know, there's the question. And then... Um, I guess with Juno Diaz, I feel like because our conversation was so centered already on on questions of sexism and questions of representation of women and the male gaze, I don't feel like I feel like I don't feel like there's harm happening from people listening to that conversation necess necessarily. I mean, I, maybe I'm not the right person to answer that, but I also wonder about the value of leaving things as artifacts of when they happened, like, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I mean, I can see the value in going back through everything and putting qualifiers, but I also wonder about to what level one should do that. Yeah. On this note, I'm often reminded of um, a Wesley Morris idea uh, where 
he was writing, you know, an essay sort of around similar things. I think it was, it was using Bill Cosby as a particular reference. And, you know, I think his thesis was ultimately that the cultural legacy that artists leave, like belong to all of us and that it is, um, you know, how, how we interact with it that matters to, I think, you know, it was a kind of an argument against cancel culture in some ways, because it, it I guess it would, unless so much that it, it, it shouldn't happen and more like that isn't a necessary enough conversation or that is not a necessary enough move, right? Um, right? What we have to do is like grapple with the ways that their work has affected us individually as a community, as a people. And that's where, yeah, you know, I think we were getting into to David's point, like there is some value in leaving it as it is, obviously sort of being attuned to and understanding the ways that like as it, it does as it is like harm other people like in what ways does it then need to be qualified to sort of like minimize that um yeah yeah and, and all <laughs> fascinating questions right i mean you said mike that sometimes you can tell if the work makes you uncomfortable and i think i know what you mean by that but at the same time i was thinking yeah, but i love work that makes me uncomfortable even in those kinds of ways, you know, I was thinking about like, and I was thinking about how, how much gender plays into that. Um, and I'm confused about whether that's okay or not okay, or what to do about that. I mean, you know, thinking about, um, uh, Ariana Raines or, um, Chris Krause, um, like if those books had been written by men, I think I might have a different feeling about the ways in which those books are like really f compellingly provocative and disturbing to me in certain ways. And I'm trying to think of other examples. Uh, they're sort of slipping my mind right now. But, you know, so that that's also, I don't know, I, I don't want to shy away from work that that is that either the work or the way someone lives that I am the moral judge of that. I mean, I think that that's, you know, j not so long ago, people were saying if someone was queer, that that they didn't want to have that person, you know, there's like something deviant about that person. I mean, you know, I, I couldn't feel less uh, aligned with that kind of thinking. And I wonder if, you know, I mean, to me, the line is clear. It's about consent or not consent. So anybody can do whatever they want as long as it's with someone else who's consensual and it's consensual. But, you know, that's a moral judgment on my part. And I wonder to what extent I am locked into a, a certain kind of generational moral judgment. And And the other thing I'll say about this is that I do also feel that it might be different for me or some of these questions might be different for me as a, a female podcast host. I think we all have responsibilities and concerns about it, but um, it, there's also a slight question for me in part because I have always done these face-to-face -face and always alone. There have been moments where I feel a bit strange being alone in the room uh, with a man that I don't know, you know, that there's a lot of gossip about, there's a lot of rumors, not because I feel that, you know, something's going to happen to me, but because that is a very deep 
kind of uh, learned anxiety that I have um, about being alone with men, about being alone, you know, without knowing who I'm with. And, you know, so and but then again, there's all kinds of weird, you know, I feel awkward about those kinds of uh, worries sometimes. And so anyway, it's something that I really haven't figured out and that I'm not quite sure what to do about. And I, I sort of have been thinking about trying to have an advisory board for commonplace, but I don't even know what that looks like or who that is or how that functions, you know? Yeah. I mean, obviously the rest of us can't um, comment directly on, you know, things, uh, the like gender aspect of that. Um, but, you know, I, what I would say is that even if I can't directly, I haven't experienced that anxiety myself, I will say that, you know, like as a person of color, that sometimes being in the room or even uh, on a remote conversation with a white person, I I do have, a, I think, a similar, I'm not saying that it's the same, but I think that there is a similar anxiety that can happen for me, even like, you know, with my therapist, who is uh, a white lady, like uh, the first few sessions, I was a little you know, a little uh, nervous about what kinds of things I can and can't say. Um, yeah. I think that for me, and there, I want to touch on something that Duji was talking about too. There's, uh, there's something I think really, um, when one comes from a marginalized community, I think that there can be an aspect of, um, that it can be an exercise of power to reclaim an, uh, an artistic object. Um, I'm thinking, for example, there was an essay that Nicole Chung wrote, uh, I think a year or two ago, maybe a little longer ago, where she was talking about some uh, a book of essays by E.B. White. And she says in the essay that I'm sure that E.B. White wasn't thinking about an adopted Korean-American girl when he was writing about sailboats, but I'm choosing to take that. Um, that's that 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 is something that I can choose to do, and I f I found that such an interesting idea. One of the things that this is bringing up for me, though, is it sort of comes back to this question of the role of the the podcast host, because I feel for myself at least, and obviously I can't speak for how anybody else ought to do things, that there is some difference. Obviously, it's intertwined, but there's some separation between me as artist, me as audience, and me as interviewer that I also oftentimes have, you know, when I'm um, an audience member, I might want to, I can find great value, as you were saying, Rachel, in, in experiencing art that is challenging and in what that does for me and what it brings to my uh, understanding of the world by um, putting myself into that position as an audience member. But I think that there is a little bit of a different question when it comes to like, um, who am I giving a platform to? Part of it for me comes down to the fact that as um, a podcaster, one of the things I think constantly about as a podcaster is the power dynamics in the relationship. For me, and I know, I think that the rest of you three are, are like this as well, but certainly it is not true for all um, interviewers and hosts. I think that the four of us are doing um, as much as we can to try and center the guest in the conversation to try and um, give them opportunities to express themselves and to, um, you know, not be making it entirely about ourselves. And I think that that, you know, giving people space to do that 
can be a really powerful tool, but it also comes with a certain responsibility. And that for me is sort of the dividing line, like where I may not be critical of a person for making the work that they make. I may think that the work that they make is uh, important in one way or another, even just for the conversations that it sparks. But like, am I the right person to be having this person on my show? Like, am I the, is this something that I need to do? And I, I don't always know that I am, you know, I think that there are ways in which I'm often more interested in, in seeing like, what can I, uh, it's not just that I want to have conversations with people who I already agree with necessarily. Um, it's not just that I want to limit my conversations to conversations that won't be uncomfortable. Um, because there are t times when I've talked to people and there has been a, a level of discomfort, but I, I, I'm always trying to figure out like, what is that discomfort in service of? For me, that's what the question is. You know what I mean? I think you said something that helped me um, a lot, uh, which is, yeah, okay, I make a lot of jokes about how I'm really selfish and I don't do as good a job centering the guest and all these things. And, and you know, those things are true. But even if I talk too much, the, the, the truth is I spend, I mean, I don't even know how many hours and I don't even know how much money per episode promoting this other person's work and and trying you know at every stage of the way to represent this person thoughtfully accurately respectfully uh you know generously in in every social media kind of presentation to make sure that i feel like you know that that people have a context for understanding you know the importance of this person and almost always this person is from a marginalized group of some kind or writing in a marginalized genre or both um you know a a, a person who who maybe has very very few uh kind of followers you know uh outside of the small cult world of you know real professional poets which is not even a thing so i think that that to be a podcast host is really to be of service you know it is it is an act of literary citizenship it is a, a position of you have a lot of responsibility and you have a lot of sort of like public facing uh i cannot use the word celebrity because that is just not true uh, <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination but but uh, but really what you're doing is listening you're really not talking i mean if you're talking it's about making connections if you are promoting your podcast it's really about promoting the other person's work none of us are getting rich off of this none of us are getting famous off of this none of us i mean i i i I think the reason why we do it is is because we love this work and we want to like make connections between um these people who like you know I I just know that that more people would love to read this work that's considered so difficult or so, you know, not fit for a general audience, or, you know, even if it's my poetry MFA students, that they're going to have an opportunity to listen to like a, you know, to listen to Norbessie Phillip talk for an hour and a half. Like, I mean, I don't know. So that, that I think helping me remember that it is really an act of service. Um, it's not, 
it's not a performance of self, even if I talk too much. <laughs> Just one thing that I think makes commonplace unique and why I like that Rachel inserts herself and we learn about Rachel when she's talking to other people is because she's the most, she's a very accomplished poet in her own right, but more so as a writer than any of us are at, at, in our in our careers. And I feel like, you know, some of the guests she has on are debut writers, and she's published way more than those writers. And some of the guests are her own inspirations or her own mother figure mentors in the poetry world, whether that be Alice Notley or Bernadette Mayer. Um, and so we get both sides, like she positions herself differently when she's interviewing Denez Smith than when she's interviewing Alice Notley, I'm guessing. Um, but it's interesting to know that the person interviewing these people is someone who has a long history of books, of working under Brenda Hillman and Jory Graham. So for me, I want Rachel to insert herself in those interviews, and it doesn't feel selfish. It feels um, kind of like when we go back to the therapist dynamic. For me, it's more honest if the therapist is transparent about their own lived experience in a way that's relevant to the person they're listening to. So the the whole notion of them being objective and blank feels false out the gate. And so not that the therapist should be giving you these long anecdotes, but perhaps these condensed glimpses of themselves that know why they're in the room and and how they're in the room. I don't know if this is even, I don't even know if we're still on the, the right question, but I'll, I'll just say that um, <laughs> it doesn't feel selfish when Rachel is, it, particularly when Rachel is, is bringing herself into the room, for me. I appreciate you saying that, but I think it's total bullshit. Like, first of all, <laughs> I don't think that I'm like, I mean, I'm just saying, I have no fucking idea what I'm doing. I don't understand. I, I you know, when I'm in the room, when I, when, when I, uh, like recorded with Morgan Parker. She had one book out at that time. She's Morgan Parker. I mean, <laughs> holy shit. You know, like, I don't know. I think I feel like equally like starstruck and idiotic. And like, I mean, maybe that's just who I am. And I find it hilarious that you have some kind of like expert, uh, like notion of me, you know, like when Duji said, like, you know, that, 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 if you ask stupid questions, um, you're, you're likely to get like, I'm so good at that. Like, uh, no matter how many books I've written, I I feel like I just literally don't know anything. It's just astonishing to me. And I do think that that's I, I don't know. I think each one of you has your own, just like we all do, have your own baggage around like, who am I to talk to this person? Who am I? you know, to run this podcast who, you know, may I, oh, I'm more of a photographer than I am a poet or yeah. you know, a writer <laughs> or, you know, nobody knows who I am or, well, there's, there's three of us. So that sort of protects me because, you know, then I don't have to, you know, carry the whole show for myself. Cause I was, I don't know. I just think that people are fascinating. Everyone is so fucked up and crazy and interesting. And like, I mean, I, I tried to get at Mike when he interviewed me. I was like, 
I was trying to, I was trying to get him to say all kinds of stuff, you know, not even consciously, but like, it's the stuff about Mike that, you know, that, that he's insecure about that I, you know, want to just like hear about all day and all night. Um, you know, but I, I don't know. I guess I just feel like I've worked this problem out for myself by deciding I don't know anything and nobody knows anything. But each one of you, I guess, whatever whatever your your hesitations are, and I think those hesitations are important, and I think that they they make each one of us, you know, kind of not Mark Marin, who I think my show is actually the most like Mark Marin, but you know, he's sort of a problematically huge ego. Um, but I think that like whatever your hesitations are, you're still making these podcasts. So something is is something is giving you permission to do it. And and I the thing that you attribute to me as the thing that like maybe gives me permission to be more personal, I don't I don't I, I don't think that's real. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I agree. Like when you met, it's interesting that you mentioned Morgan Parker because that I feel like people like Morgan Parker or Tommy Pico or Denez Smith who are so dynamic and so, um, I mean, I would even say with with some of them, amazing like the way they move in the world. Like when we're talking about being in person with people, like gestures, fashion, delivery, um, humor like gra- gravitas um they're intimidating to me it doesn't matter how many super not doesn't matter how many books they have it makes me feel like i'm like oh my god i am so square and i think about how like you know how unpopular i was in junior high school and i'm sure yeah. they were too <laughs> but i'm thinking like they're, they they seem like the cool kids in school like um and so like that has nothing to do with whether they were they have one book or 20 books. Right. Did I, did so, I make, I saw you, uh, what was that expression you just had, Rachel Zucker? Was, it, was I, um, was I, what was that? I, <laughs> see, this is what's so dangerous. Um, I was thinking about, I was developing a whole uh, philosophy of how we each came to be sort of messed up in in exactly the way in which each one of us is messed up. And I was thinking about, you know, Morgan, this is public information, was very depressed um, as a young person. I mean, she writes about this and um, I think felt incredibly alone um, because of that. Um, Tommy, for a lot of reasons, you know, including the fact that he was overweight at one point, you know, I was just like, I was like going through all the examples that you said, and I was thinking about them in sort of psychological terms and thinking of also about how some people present with an enormous amount of confidence, an enormous amount of like, you know, like Robin Cost Lewis. I mean, I, I love Robin so, so much. And like, she was my student. Um, and she has one book. Um, so in some ways, like you would think I had the power in the room. I did not have the power in the room by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, Robin is a fucking genius. And I was just like, ah, but I think that, you know, Robin also, is presents with so much openness and receptivity and and there are people who are very young and have you know had 
uh, very sort of difficult lives who who somehow you know seem like a frightened you know like they're they're going to break if you ask them a question. And then there's other people who just really have a lot of either defenses or a lot of professionalism or a lot of like you know boundaries. And 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 I was thinking about that too. Like part of it is about lived experience, a cultural background, um, class. Uh, race, you know, all of these kinds of things that, that, you know, I have a lot of privilege that makes me able to feel like a fool and keep doing stuff and keep being public. A, a lot of that comes from my educational privilege, my uh, geographical privilege, my class privilege, like so much of that confidence, um, you know, comes from that. So I don't know, I've just I have had I had like a million different thoughts at once that I was like, Oh, and then of course, yeah. the thought I always have is Oh, my God, shut up, you're talking too much. <laughs> well, sorry to put you on the spot. <laughs> I, so I think, you know, for me, this is bringing up a, a you know, this is something that I did want to sort of uh, get to um, is and which I mentioned before this, this question of power dynamics in the interview. Um, because it's one that I think a lot about. And for me, uh, one of the more challenging aspects of interviewing or conversation or whatever you want to call it is to try is how to manage that, how to navigate talking to people across a difference. And, um, for example, you know, Rachel, you were just talking about, you use the word privilege, right? So like something that I think a lot about is like, you know, um, what what is my position relative to the person that I'm talking to? Like I'm, um, you know, I'm a man. I'm American. I'm, uh, you know, relatively affluent and I'm well educated. Um, I'm not white, so that's um, that's one thing. But like all of these things, like uh, you know, for me, it's always a question of like, how am I going to best take care of the person that I'm talking to? Because that's that's sort of what how I approach it. But I want I want to know for the rest of you, like, how do you, how do you approach this, this challenge if you, or if you even see it as a challenge to, to talk to people across difference to, um, to be without, without being disrespectful, without, you know, stepping in it while maintaining empathy. Um, and, 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 and mostly like how to not let that get in the way of having a good conversation, you know? Um, we haven't heard from Duji in a while. <laughs> Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> no worries. I'm, I, I just realized like I was, uh, I got into just listening to, I've heard your guys' voices so much. <laughs> this point in my life. <laughs> it just became like I was listening <laughs> and forgot that I was actually in the conversation for a sec. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that's an interesting uh, that's always an interesting question, right? I think so much of the conversations we're having, it just feels like the type of podcast conversation only poets could have. But, you know, in terms of, I think, interviewing across difference, I'm, I think about to what end. And I think Alexander Chi wrote an essay about this, and I was lucky enough to hear him sort of say this in at Breadloaf last year. You know, I think to the extent that I myself find myself interviewing someone who is inevitably different than me um, and I'm asking questions in a ham-handed way to sort of get at some of that difference. I think it is always important to sort of like, you know, root myself in like, what's the purpose of this? Um, you know, and I think where you ended the question, Mike, is sort of where we start, right? Like, I want to have a great conversation 
one where I learn uh, and hopefully have fun along the way. You know, that is not to say that I'm not interested in being challenged or pushed and all of those things that I think hopefully come along the way and are part of that ultimate goal. But I think that that ends up being the way I approach even crafting conversations. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's a lot of sort of internal pre-work that has to happen to ensure that when it is finally expressed, like with the other person that you're interviewing, that as much as possible, you sort of like work that stuff out. Um, and then the question can be sort of on the merits of like what their obsessions are. And I think, you know, the phrase that David used really, really early on um, is going to be really useful in my thinking is just like centering them in the universe of their interests, right? I think if the point of interviewing someone across difference is to prove that you can interview someone <laughs> across difference, then that's just going to be like a pretty boring conversation that probably won't illuminate much. But if that interview, if sort of crossing that difference means, you know, literally inhabiting your inhabiting that like universe of interests that you certainly like cannot have the same understanding of and sort of trying to find where your interpretation of that lives alongside what them, that person, I think like that's sort of like the beginnings, like that's where the juice is and that's where the interesting thing happens. But that, I, again, I think there's like just a ton of like personal work that has to happen before you get there. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. David, one of the things that I remember talking to you about on Twitter at one point was um, that I had expressed an anxiety about like asking a question and then having the person, you know, having that sort of J. Alfred Prufrock moment of like, no, that's not it. That's that's not it at all. And and you kind of chimed in and said, um, but that could lead to an interesting conversation too. Um, I'm, I, so I'm interested in, in hearing you talk about this a little bit too. Can I just add one thing to what Duji said first? Mm-hmm. You sure? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I just wanted to, like, I was just thinking back to one of my strategies, I guess, around, I don't know if it's a strategy, but around this question about writing or interviewing across difference, I'm really, one of my through lines in my show is my interest in this question about writing across difference. And I remember early on in the podcast when I interviewed Claudia Rankin and we were talking about the racial imaginary, which Rachel Zucker has a piece in, but also just talking about the idea that she had or the question she had of why white people, when they write about race, so rarely stay in their own bodies, that they're always imagining themselves in other bodies when they're writing their fictions about race. And I that's just something that over and over again I've posed to different writers. And so there's a part of me that has this desire to be with people who are really different than me, to talk about art making and their own personal views about um, imagining the other or not imagining the other. So like to take Claudia Rankin's views and present them to Zadie Smith, who had just written this amazing piece in the New York uh, Review of Books called Fascinated to Presume, which was her defense of, of the people who are always going into other lives and animating them with their imaginations, including her. And then that conversation went a very different way than I imagined it would go based on that essay. Mm. And I, I feel like 
I feel like that's self-generating for me because I'm interested in it around my own questions. Again, back to like self-oriented writing um, questions of, well, why do I decide to leave my own identity when I do? And are they good reasons when I'm choosing to? So I guess that's, I just wanted to add that in there. There's a way I think to take the question and make it part of the interview hmm. in a way. Yeah. So, um, Rachel, we talked, we were brought this question up when we had a break just a minute ago and, and you had a really interesting, um, a really interesting comment that I, I wanted to, to follow up on, which was that for you, a lot of times the thing that gets the most challenging is w- when you actually have something in common with the person you're talking to. And I wanted to, I wanted to, to get your thoughts on that a little more and unpack that a little bit. Yeah. So let me back up just for one second, which is listening to all three of you is is so um, fascinating. And I was thinking about the word difference. I mean, I guess on I know because I have been raised in an incredibly racist, patriarchal society that I have racist uh, internalized misogyny, like all sorts of problematic ways of talking about the world. And yet I also know myself, um, that I can't be separated from, um, those beliefs that I've, that I've, you know, been surrounded by my whole life. And it's very hard to imagine something outside of those constructs. But I know that, that um, I'm not saying like, oh, in my heart, I'm pure. That's bullshit. What I am saying is that I don't actually believe that there's anything other than difference. Like, and and obviously different differences are different, you know, um, and have different effects. And that's what we're talking about. I think we're 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 sort of conflating difference with privilege or difference with power. Um, but difference is i mean they're really am i the same as you know anyone no do i presume or believe that i can understand anyone's motivations um anyone's deep desires anyone's inner soul no i don't and i think that the the place that i get into trouble um is when i have a moment of kind of like identification which is a similarity, not same. I'm not the same as anyone. Like, you know, even, even when my babies were, you know, had just like come out of my body, they were different. They were just other. They were like, everyone is other. You know, there's the, uh, Doreen Wang, who's, uh, one of the producers on Commonplace wants me to cut that that phrase, I talked about this in the beginning, conversations with poets and other people, because for her, it brings up the being othered um, and a kind of like, you know, discomfort and the the way in which, you know, to be othered is to be, you know, either looked down upon or to be discriminated against. And I guess for me, the initial impetus for that phrase was like, 
everyone is another person than me. Like I don't write persona poems. I don't write in the voices of other people. Maybe I will one day, but I've never been able to. Occasionally I can write about myself in third person, but that is not actually a different person. That's just me. And so I think that all of this is like bound up together for me, this sort of philosophy of like, I think that writing, I think that podcasting, I think that like, all of my relationships with other people on some level are about like a f- kind of fundamental love of other human beings and a fundamental anxiety that like nobody really exists and I'm not even sure I exist and you know and, and what it, what it means to be always in self other always hmm. whatever whatever someone else is bringing to the table just the fact that this is another human being with an interiority that i cannot access i can only get close i can only try i can only listen i can only be next to you know be sort of with but i i don't actually believe that people can really know each other you know or 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 assume to know each other. So that's like a whole philosophical way of talking about the the problem that I sometimes have, which is I think that when there are differences that are more explicit or, you know, more visible in the room or more palpable or, you know, someone comes from another country and, you know, uh, or you know, or had, or just like loved their mother so, so much. She was their best friend, you know, like that's a big difference for me. (laughs) You know, when there's something like that, my curiosity makes me a better listener and more attentive and uh, less judgmental and more aware of, in a way, aware of my audience because that curiosity is going to make me more careful. When uh, I was speaking with Darcy Stanky, um, we were talking about, we were, I was trying to talk about cutting down the the binary between fertile and infertile in terms of menopause as a line that separates fertility and in and post fertility um because i was trying to talk about the ways in which the patriarchy has used fertility as a measure to control women and value women um and that you know, I wanted to talk about fertility as a concept that had to do with creativity, that had to do with leadership, that had to do not with reproduction. But one of my listeners really felt that um, the two of us were talking about, and I think it was when we were talking about being mothers, um, because both of us do have biological children, I think that we were using us kind of shorthand familiarity, similarity, uh, metaphors, you know, way of communicating around something that was intended to break down a binary that's been extremely hurtful um, to women. And instead, we perpetuated that. And we, you know, unintentionally 
perpetuated these ideas about fertility and infertility in a way that really alienated and and hurt one of my listeners um, and and felt like I was saying that that women who are have not had children um, for whatever reason are somehow less a part of of womanhood so I think and and I've had like slightly similar problems before either it could be when I know someone very very well or or when I share something very important with them, I think I, I, it, it, the less strange a person appears to be to me, the less unlike me, sometimes the less attentive and careful I am. And I think that that can be hurtful. Hmm. This thing that you just said about a shorthand is really interesting to me. And I think one of the things it gets at for me here is you know i like i certainly don't want to like minimize the experience that your listener that 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 contacted you is having because that's a real thing and being mindful of that kind of thing is 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 uh you know is or should be or maybe i don't know what the right word is um part of uh, one's responsibility as a a host sure um but i think what's interesting here is that i think uh you know i listened to that episode and Without taking anything away from a listener that 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 might have um, had a different experience, it seems to me that the two of you in the room had an understanding, and because you had yeah. that shorthand available to you, and to me this brings up a really interesting question of like, uh, especially because the three of you are always recording in person. And I think all four of us are are um, have a more conversational style. I think maybe David has a style that is closest to a traditional interview, but all of us have like a a, a style that is, you know, really about making connections with people. This question about, um, you know, to what extent are we making an experience that's just between ourselves and our guest, and to what extent are we making an experience that is outward facing, that is facing the people outside of the room. I think that's a really interesting question and how we address that, how we allow that to come into the conversation is a, is an interesting question as a, as a, a podcast host. So like David, do you have any thoughts about that? I confess that I don't know that I'm thinking about the audience. Yeah. I feel like I'm thinking about me and the guest in the room and mm. hoping and trusting that there might be some, but he interested in listening in. Um, yeah, I I don't know that I'm super aware of an audience. Yeah, I think that's probably like in the moment. That's probably true of 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 all of us in one way or another. Um, now I know for myself, I'm I am trying to pay the most attention to the person I'm talking to. Um, but there will be times when I um, even just as a technical matter, just saying. Uh, interrupting someone when, um, you know, because I'm I'm remote, right? Or um, or if I'm in person, let's say a plane goes overhead, and I say, well, I have to stop the person and say, I'm going to need you to repeat what you just said. To me, that's very difficult to do because I wouldn't do that in a normal conversation, right? right. Um, but I'm thinking about the recording. Well, what about um, DG? <laughs> I'm going to jump in because I had a question for DG around this. Also, like, given that a chunk of your guests are regional. Pacific Northwest, are you then, do you think of yourself as addressing the region? Like, is, is there something, is there a consciousness around literary community that is bioregional 
that you're thinking of when you're talking to a guest who happens to be from Seattle or Bellingham or Portland? I don't know that it is overt or deliberate. <laughs> um, I think we also, especially when we started, didn't think much of an audience as much beyond ourselves. I, I do think that it does end up sort of cropping up. I think it, it turns out, uh, unsurprisingly, that we have regional interests, right? That we have our own sort of how how does my body live in relation to the city I stay in and the region I grew up in or the place that I moved to? And those questions do come up fairly often, especially when we interview guests who are here within Seattle or, you know, we got a chance to interview Tatum Bambrick who grew up in Ellensburg um, and lived in Yakima, which is like the little tiny town in Eastern Washington that I grew up with, but we didn't you know, know each other, but we knew mutual people and we were able to sort of piece together a sense of rural poetics just because of the geography of where we're at. So I guess like it affects our conversations in that way to the extent of audience. I don't, I don't know. And I don't think so, but we are fairly active literary citizens. I think all three of us, both within our town and whatever other communities that we have been fortunate enough to be a part of. And so I think to the extent, again, that we do think about audience, it is, it is that, right? We are really, we are grounded and rooted in and have a vested interest in building the uh, literary community here in Seattle. And so while it may not be deliberate in like the crafting of our questions necessarily, it's not like we, you know, go about saying like, all right, we've got five guests who are from the Pacific Northwest. Every one of those interviews should have two questions about Seattle. Um, (laughs) But over just like over the course of being in that kind of proximity and that kind of like thinking together and the way that we are want to be part of the poetry community here. I think that just sort of inevitably seeps in. And I think that is, you know, another facet of that audience question, right? It is just like, who are we bringing into the room in that conversation? I think that is ultimately maybe our audience. Hmm. If I tried to answer that question. Have any of you tried to have any of you recorded with a loved one, a significant other, child, partner, lover, not I not like for your podcast, but have you had the experience of like recording? Like even when David earlier said that it was disorienting to him not to be able to hear his own voice. You know, I'm thinking about the way in which on the one hand, yeah, I don't really think about the audience when I'm in the room. I'm really just thinking about the other person. On the other hand, even just the technical stuff of hearing my own voice or of knowing that I'm recording this, that I'm making something, makes it not a conversation, even as much as I want to have it seem like a conversation, have it seem natural, have it seem authentic. Like I recorded a phone conversation with my father the other day and I could find my, I could find myself, I could catch myself thinking like, oh, that's, that's good. That's good. Oh, that sounds good. That's so smart. Or, (laughs) oh, that's, I gotcha. You know, or like whatever it was. And I think that that, um, the idea that there is an audience is something I think that is actually really critical to what we're doing, even if we don't, we're not in the moment thinking of them. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think about that all the time. I think the fact that there is an audience at all, I think is the gag, right? <laughs> like, yeah. It isn't just a conversation um, among friends. It is, you know, designed to be 
a sort of product that someone else consumes. I, I mean, I don't think that it is entirely different than me recording my kids when they do something cute, you know, <laughs> or having them do it again so that I can record it. Whether I end up sharing it or not, that is a sort of where the interesting sort of set of questions come you know, then there's, I think that's where sort of like the ethics of it happen. But in terms of like informing, I think the actual conversation, you know, the fact that there's an audience at all, there's whatever that quantum physics observer effect is like, yeah. that, I, I feel that very strongly in our conversations. And, you know, I don't think I ever answered one of the early questions of how do you build rapport? But, but one of the things is I sort of start recording and we just like do our normal, just like roundabout set of conversations and then I inform everyone hey is it okay if we record the rest of this conversation we've been recording for the last 20 minutes um and in some ways I think that like both puts its finger right on the thing and then also sort of disrupts like the heightened maybe anxiety or nervousness that that knowing that there's an observer might bring Hmm. Mm. uh yeah I haven't personally ever recorded with um someone from my personal life before the closest I've gotten is that a few of my friends are, um, are people who have now published. And so I've had them on the show that has been a very interesting experience for me. Um, and I do feel like there is something more presentational about that experience than, um, when I'm just talking to them in person, um, or on Twitter or whatever. Um, so yeah, yeah, I definitely think that it, 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 it definitely changes something about the experience for sure. I agree with all of you. You're all very smart. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I, I want to thank the the three of you so much for taking the time and um, such a long time <laughs> talking um, with me and with each other about this. I really appreciate your time. So thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Did, did you record this? <laughs> <laughs> Steady, fed and spaghetti. <laughs> <laughs>